Well, you may be seated this morning. Another full house again, the second service. And as we start this Christmas season, we appreciate the people that did the decorations for our, our church here. This looks really, really good here this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 this morning as we continue down this journey of God's Word to the seven churches in Revelation. On October 21st, this past year, a 14-year-old Assyrian boy named Ayad Tariq was beheaded by militant Muslims in Bakuba, Iraq. He was beginning to work on his shift as a mechanical um, engineer on a generator, electrical generator, when a group of disguised Muslims came up and asked him for his identification. And when they found out that he was a Christian, they yelled at him, you dirty Christian. They held him down, arms and legs, and they rose the sword and they cried out, Allah Akbar, which means God is great, and they beheaded him. We think about persecution. We think about martyrdom. We think about things going on in our world. As a matter of fact, Indonesia is a place where Muslim militants reign supreme. And there's a tendency among some of the Christians in Indonesia to maybe be tempted to capitulate, tempted to give up their faith, tempted to cave in. And so what they've done as a reminder is they've put roosters on the top of their churches. Now, we might think of those as weather vanes, but those roosters on the top of those churches are there to remind the people of Peter. Remember Peter? Denied Christ three times in the rooster crowed. So they look up at those churches, they see the steeple, and that visual reminder of the rooster helps those Christians to remain strong in the face of persecution. Now, these things are so foreign to us in our cushy American church. We're sitting here today in a heated building. We're seated here today in padded pews. Most of you came in cars. There's no threat of somebody barging through the door and and, and militantly wanting to put us to death. We don't live in that type of world, so a lot of this stuff is foreign to us. In AD 155, there was persecution breaking out in the Roman Empire. And there was a prominent pastor who was pleaded with by his congregation to go into hiding. They said, you need to go into hiding to save your life. And so this pastor went and listened to his congregation and hid out in a barn for a couple of days. As he was hiding out in this barn, he knew it was God's will to be arrested. And so his assailants came in to arrest him and drag him before the authorities, and he willingly went. And he was dragged before the Roman authorities, and he was asked this, If you confess Caesar as Lord and denounce Christ, if you forsake your Christian faith, you will live. And this pastor uttered these famous words. He says, for 86 years, I've served him, and he's done me no evil. How can I curse my king who loves me so? And they said, okay. They took him out to a post. They tied him up to burn him at the stake. It was a Sabbath day. And the Jews in that city were so against Christianity that even on the Sabbath day they broke their own law and they were the first to come and lay wood at the base of that pastor and that pastor was burned at the stake for his faith. Many of you may know who this pastor is. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the early church fathers. Why do I tell you the story about Polycarp? Polycarp was the bishop 
of Smyrna. We turn our attention to the book of Smyrna. 65 years earlier, A.D. 95, John is writing these words from Christ to the church in Smyrna. What do we know about this church? Well, let's read together Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And by the way, this is the shortest of the letters to the seven churches. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We're going to get very familiar with these seven aspects of all these churches. Each church, there's seven aspects to the churches, and we're going to look at these seven aspects each week. And the first thing we see is the introductory address. Who's this addressed to? To the angel in the church of Smyrna. What does history tell us about Smyrna, besides the fact that Polycarp was martyred there? By the way, Polycarp was the twelfth martyr in Smyrna. Eleven had gone before him. Smyrna was about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Last week we looked at Ephesus being the financial capital, the capital. If Ephesus was the capital, Smyrna was the most brilliant city in Asia Minor. It had wide paved streets, which was unusual at that time. As a matter of fact, in the middle of the town, there was a street called the Golden Street. In the town, you had the Temple of Zeus on one end and the Temple of Cybele on the other end, and they were connected by the Golden Street. So this was a town of beauty. This was a town of grandeur. There was a sizable Jewish population there that was very, very hostile to the Christian church. Homer, the poet who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, was born in Smyrna. It was a town of medicine, science, architecture, the arts. It was a place that was what we would consider a cosmopolitan melting pot. But it was also a place of intense emperor worship. Domitian, the emperor, made a mandate that once a year, every single citizen of Rome had to come to a pagan altar, dip a pinch of incense on the altar, and confess publicly before everybody, Caesar is Lord and God. That posed a major problem for Christians whose only allegiance is Christ as Lord and God. So this is Smyrna, the town, a dark place of persecution. But let's look at the aspect of Christ's appearance to John. Remember, each time that Jesus is going to address the church, he's going to give an aspect of what John saw or revealed in chapter 1. He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. We saw this a few weeks ago that Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus has died and has come back to life. He's preeminent. He's sovereign. He's exalted. He's the king. He's the resurrected Christ. And by the way, if you don't know this Christ this morning, you might want to get to know him. Just a side note, because he is the first and last and will have the final word. And every knee and every tongue 
Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he exalts himself as the first and the last. Now, why would this be so important? That, that doesn't seem like a big thing. But to the Smyrnans, it meant a lot. Now, remember, Jesus is going to use things related to the city to convey a message. Do you know what Smyrna was known as? What was the nickname of Smyrna? It was called the first of Asia. It was the first of Asia. It was the first in grandeur and power and glory. But it was also the first in, in its attraction to emperor worship. It was one of the first, church, the first cities to sub- submit to Roman rule. It was one of the oldest cities. And so Jesus comes and says, Smyrna Christians, I know you live in a city that calls itself the first. But I just want to remind you, Smyrna Christians, I am the first and I am the last. This town might think it's called the first of Asia, but I'm elevating myself above all earthly powers as the king, as the ruler, as Christ. And that gives you great confidence to know that when you're in the midst of this persecution, they may think they're the first, but I am the first. Well, let's thirdly look at the spiritual evaluation. What does Christ have to say about this church? Verse 9, I know your tribulation, and your poverty. Two things that characterize this church that Jesus intimately knows. Tribulation and poverty. What is tribulation? The word means suffering, tribulation, persecution. In the original language, it means to be squeezed in a vice grip through a narrow strait, to be squeezed, to be pressed, to be crushed. These Christians were crushed under the weight of the oppressive hand of Rome, and it caused problems for them. But not only were they crushed and persecuted and and suffered severe persecution, it says they were poverty-stricken. I know you're poverty. This doesn't just mean that they were poor. This Greek word means that they were absolutely, utterly, abjectly poverty-stricken like a beggar. They were destitute. So living in Smyrna was hard for Christians because you could lose your job. You could lose any influence. They lived as beggars with hardly any money, under the iron hand of Rome. This was a very difficult situation. A very difficult situation. But notice what Jesus says. You're rich. And they'd be thinking, now wait a minute, Jesus, we have no money. We're in poverty. Most of us have lost our jobs. We've been castigated by the society. We're we're suffering persecution and tribulation, and you call us rich? Jesus is not talking about material blessings here. He's saying they are rich in only the things that Christ can give. Christ can give peace and joy and hope and purpose in the midst of extreme persecution. Now, who was primarily responsible for this persecution? The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Now, this is a trick question. Who was responsible for the persecution? At first glance, we might think it was a group of Jews. But the actual force... Behind the persecution is Satan himself. It says, you are a synagogue of Satan. This is the first time Satan shows up in the book of Revelation. That word Satan itself means adversary or enemy. The real source behind the persecution was Satan. Now there were obviously some ethnic Jews in Smyrna who were thinking they were doing God's will. They, think, they thought they were doing the law. They thought they were doing everything according to God. They thought they were worshiping God by making things hard for these Christians. But Jesus comes to them with one of the sharpest rebukes I think I've ever heard out of the mouth of Christ to say, you are a synagogue of Satan. 
The synagogue was the worship place of the Jews. To have Christ come and say, you're a synagogue of Satan, is a big deal. Why do these Jews hate Christians so much? Why do these Jews hate Christ? Why were they a synagogue of Satan? They did not accept the Messiah. They did not accept the fact that Jesus Christ came as the Messiah. And they rejected him. Because they looked back at the Old Testament and said, anybody who hangs on a cross, that is dead positive proof that they've been rejected by God. If you hang on a cross, God has totally forsaken you. They didn't see the beauty of the fact that Christ had to be forsaken. That Christ was abandoned by God on the cross. That Christ was our substitute for our sins. They looked at the cross as an offense. And they didn't understand that Jesus Christ was, was, was the Messiah. And, G- and Jesus says, you're not a true Jew. You think you're Jews, but you're not. You're not a true Jew. Now, what's a true Jew? Now, there's ethnic Jews, people that are descendants of, of Abraham that are ethnic Jews, but that's not a true Jew. Jesus says a true Jew is something else. Notice what Paul says in Romans two twenty eight and 29. This is what Paul says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Basically what Paul's saying is it doesn't matter if you're ethnically a Jew. That's not what the issue is. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. What Paul is basically saying here is that a true Jew, a true child of Abraham, is one who's come to faith in Christ regardless of what type of nationality you are. Now let's be real careful here. I'm not anti-Semitic in saying all Jews are a synagogue of Satan. There was just some Jews in this particular point in time, in this place, in Smyrna, that were causing problems for the Christians, and we see historically, 65 years later, that they were the first ones to come and put Polycarp to death. So there was a hostile group of Jews here. But what are the words of rebuke and correction? The fifth aspect, or the fourth aspect. If you're paying close attention, you will see that, you might think, well, Sean made a mistake. There's not seven aspects here. You're right. There are none. There are no words of reproof. There are no words of correction. There are no words of rebuke. Jesus does not come to the Smyrna church and say, I have this against you. Smyrna is one of the two, one of the two churches that, that, that Jesus does not come and, and give them a correction. And it's very amazing. In the darkest of places, the light shines the brightest. The lampstand of Smyrna is glowing at full wattage in a dark and oppressive place. And Jesus has nothing against them. But let's look at the words of encouragement and exhortation. This is where 21st century American ears find it very difficult to hear what Jesus is going to say. Because Jesus does not promise any relief. Jesus doesn't say it's going to get better. He doesn't promise health, wealth, and the prosperity gospel. It's not a grab it, blab it. Or blab it, grab it, name it, claim it. He doesn't go and hand them Joel Osteen's your best life now. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it's going to get worse. Whoa. That's foreign to our ears as Americans. It's going to get worse. You mean we're going to suffer even more persecution than this? Well, listen to the two commands that Jesus gives them, the two exhortations. First one he says is do not be afraid or do not fear what you're about to suffer. Don't fear. Now, there's legitimate fear in persecution. We don't understand this as Americans. What's the worst that can happen to us here? Lose a job, lose a friend, somebody laugh at us. We don't have to worry about our head being chopped off. 
We don't have to worry about being dragged off into jail or being beaten to a pulp or burnt at a stake. We don't have to worry about that in America and praise the Lord. Thank the Lord. But our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are in areas of persecution have to fear their very lives. And Jesus says, don't fear. Why are they not to fear? Well, because he's in control. He's the one that holds them in the palm of his right hand. I came across a message by a youth pastor a few months ago, and I gave this to, 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 to Trevor, and I gave it to Nate. Hard-hitting youth message. A, a missionary spoke a message to a, to a large gathering of Southern Baptist youth. It was so hard-hitting, he wasn't asked to come back again. Pretty radical, what he said. And he said something like this, and I don't know if I'm quoting it quite exactly, but he said, you talk about radical Christianity in America. You teenagers think you're radical, right? Because you wear a t-shirt. Or you go to a Christian concert. Ooh, you're radical. He says, where I come from, being radical is willing to stand up for your faith and being shot, beheaded, or dragged and beaten in a country where you're not allowed to claim Christ. That's radical. So don't stand up and say you're radical for Christ because you wear a t-shirt. And you could see like there was silence. And you couldn't hear a pin drop. And I'm sure he wasn't asked back because it was an offensive message to our American ears. But notice what it says. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. There's the devil again. Different word for him. Satan means adversary. Devil means accuser. Accuser. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison for your testing. Now, prison. A lot of us in this church work at the prison. We go and do ministry at the prison. We understand prison life. Prison back then is nothing related to prison today. Prison back then was a temporary holding place for you to get your head chopped off. So when you went to prison, it was almost as if it was your death sentence. You weren't going to wait there a long time. You were going to wait there a very short time and get killed, basically. And if you did have a trial, it would be a very short trial. And for most intents and purposes, in Smyrna, it would mean imminent death. 2 Timothy 3, 12-13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To some extent, to others. We are not experiencing great persecution here in America like other places in the world. And so what would be the temptation? If you're in this prison, this temporary prison, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, what would be your temptation? To renounce Christ and say, I don't want my head chopped off. I don't want to be burnt at the stake. I'm going to give up on Jesus. Okay, I'll say Caesar is Lord. I don't really mean it in my heart, but I'll say it with my mouth. I'll denounce Christ. There would be a great temptation to do that. And Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Jesus was called the faithful witness in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and he called them to be the same. And then he says, you'll be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. What in the world is this 10 days? Does that mean 10 literal days? Does it mean some of them will go into prison for 10 days? I'm using about eight commentaries on this Revelation series. There's not one straight answer out of all of them. I get everything from it's a literal 10 days to it's symbolic of a long period of time. It's symbolic to a short period of time. It's symbolic for all these things. But the bottom line I came to is this. 10 means what? There's a definite end. He doesn't say 11. He says 10. God is sovereign even over the schemes of the devil. The devil might think he has the last word by throwing these people into prison. But God comes in his sovereignty and says, I will bring an end to your tribulation. As a matter of fact, you know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther said, he's Satan, but he's God's Satan. Satan is still God's errand boy on a leash and can only do what God allows him to do. 
It's not this dualistic thing where you have Satan as powerful as God and there's this chess match to see who's going to win out. No, Satan only is allowed to do what God allows him to do. Remember Job? God was the one that pointed Job out. So Satan can only do what God and his sovereignty will allow him to do. And there's great hope that God says it's only going to be 10 days. Whether it was a literal 10 days for them, we don't know. But God will see that his true children persevere to the end. What's the second command? This is one that's even harder. This is a hard one for us. Jesus says, you're going to be thrown into prison, but the second command is this. You're going to die. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Great encouragement, right, Jesus? We're already poverty-strucken. We're already in tribulation. You tell us not to fear, but then you said, you're going to die, just be faithful up to death. Don't give in. Don't cave in. It's not those who start the race who win. It's those who finish. Don't give up. Remain faithful. And if you remain faithful unto death, I will give you a reward. What's the reward Jesus promises? The crown of life. Now we hear this all the time, the crown of life, the crown of life. To the Smyrnans, this was something very particular. The crown of life. Let me explain to you about the city of Smyrna for a moment. And Jesus is a master here. He's using something related to their life. Temple of Zeus. Temple of Sybil. Golden Street. In the very middle of town, Mount Pagus rose. And on the top of Mount Pagus, the colonnaded buildings formed the skyline to Smyrna. So when you looked up at Smyrna and saw the skyline, guess what they called Smyrna? The crown. It was the crown of Smyrna. Everywhere in town you looked up, you could see the crown of Smyrna. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the real crown. You might think you live in a town that has the crown, but I give you the real crown, eternal life. Not only that, in Smyrna there was a Colosseum where they had the Olympic Games. And the crown was a wreath that the victor wore on his head to show that he had finished the race. And so Jesus uses an analogy from what they see up on the hill, an analogy from sports, and also from their coins. In Smyrna, on their coins, they had pictures of the faithful servants of the city wearing a crown. It's no surprise that Jesus uses this crown analogy to speak very specifically to the Smyrna church that they will receive the crown. Everywhere they look, crown, 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 crown. The crown is coming, crashing upon them. But Jesus says, I'm elevating above the crown of Smyrna to give you the true crown, which is eternal life. And he says, there's a command to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a hard thing to hear for us as Americans. This would be a hard thing for them to hear. Just think about it. Jesus comes to them and says, don't be afraid, you're going to die. You have an ear to listen? Listen. Okay, Jesus, some great encouragement. But what's the promise to the overcomer? The seventh aspect. The promise to the overcomer. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We know what the second death is. The second death is the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. Perpetual torment in a lake of fire for those that do not trust Christ as their salvation will spend eternity suffering the second death. In the original language, you don't get this in your English, but there is a double negative in the Greek which reads this way. You will not never experience the second death. It's an emphatic way Jesus says, if you overcome to the end, be faithful, you won't experience the second death. Yes, looking down the barrel of militant Muslim 
or being under the chopping block of a sword or being tied to a post, that's going to hurt. That's going to be a death that you're going to experience. And you might suffer for a while or it might go over like that. But far better for you to experience a quick death like that than to spend eternity in the flames of the lake of fire, the second death. As a matter of fact, Jesus alludes to this back in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're going to die. You're going to get the crown of life. You won't be hurt by the second death. Now, I got to the end of this message and thought, this is a great encouragement to Emmanuel Baptist Church. How in the world do we make application today to this? We don't live in persecution. We don't live under the the barrel of of the gun of persecution or the sword of persecution. How How do we relate to this today? There's some very key application points I want to make this morning. How does this relate to us? What is the practical application to 21st century Emmanuel Baptist Church today? First one is this. They all start with P. Forgive the alliteration. Sometimes pastors got to put alliteration in there. Four P's, okay? Pray for the persecuted church. I don't know if you're aware that there is major persecution going on around the world. And I want to give you a resource. It's called www.persecution.com. It's the voice of the martyrs. It's a website where you can go and find out where persecution is happening around the world. You can get on their email list. You can sign up for their magazines. It is a great resource for you to look at the nations of the world where persecution is hitting and pray specifically. Now, there's also another website, www.persecution.org. That org.com, both of them will give you great information on how to pray for the persecuted church. I think it's a travesty that we in America sometimes argue about colors of carpets when there's people living in mud huts in third world countries or they're living underground in fear of somebody coming in and killing their pastor or killing them. It's a travesty. Now, I'm not saying that we should be ashamed of what God has blessed us with. We need to be thankful. I'm thankful that we live in America. I'm thankful that we can worship freely here today. I do not wish persecution on anybody, but we need to be praying for those others around the world. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us to do this. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray specifically for those brothers and sisters around the world that are getting persecuted. Number two, and this I think is harder, and you may disagree with me, but that's okay. Prepare for the possibility that persecution might hit America. I'm not saying persecution is going to hit America. I just said we need to be prepared for the possibility that persecution could come to Christians in our very own land. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to be faced with that. Not in my lifetime, you'd say. I don't know, but we need to at least be prepared for that. This past September, a Navy chaplain was court-martialed. He was thrown in jail. You know why he was thrown in jail? He ended his prayer in Jesus' name, amen. He said, that's sectarian, that's wrong, you can't pray in Jesus' name, throw him in jail, court-martial him. Well, later on, Congress actually got involved, and they had a congressional hearing, and he was allowed to go free, And Congress rescinded that policy for army chaplains that they can indeed now pray sectarian prayers. You can pray in Jesus' name. 
Okay, back in October 10th, Philadelphia, Outfest, the, the, the homosexual gathering parade, if you will. Eleven people were thrown into jail, spent 21 hours in jail, and were charged with misdemeanors, felonies, and intimidation of, of other people. It wasn't the homosexuals. It was a group of 11 people that wanted to pass out tracts. They went and wanted to pass out tracts and witness at this parade. And a group of pink angels came and blocked them from coming in. So the pastor and his 11 cohorts said, let's go talk to the police and just at least be allowed to come in here and witness. The police let them go in. They were verbally assaulted. They were attacked. They were spat upon. And then they were the ones that were arrested. Spent 21 days in jail, and they were the ones that had the problem. Now, I'm not here to say whether one side was right or one side was wrong, whether they were like the Phelps people from Kansas that hold up those hateful signs. I'm not here to say what happened, because we do need to love homosexuals, and they could have been belligerent on both sides. But here's the issue. In our very own nation, we need to be prepared for persecution to happen. I don't know if we're ready for that. I don't know if I'm ready for that but maybe the possibility of it. Thirdly, practice living the paradox. You might be thinking, well, you know what? I'm not going to die for my faith. I'm not going to be martyred. But you know what Jesus tells us to do? He tells us to live the paradox. Let me read to you the paradox that Jesus tells us to live every day. Luke 9, 23 through 26, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We're called to die every day. We're called to take up our cross daily, follow him, to die to self, to die to our desires, to die to our wishes, to die to our dreams, and to submit to... Christ and what Christ calls us to do as Lord. And he says, if you're ashamed of me, now, just think how I'm going to be when I come at the second coming. The question we have to ask ourselves, are we living a lifestyle that shows that we're ashamed of the gospel? Maybe we're not afraid of persecution, but maybe we're not as vocal as we should be. Practice living the paradox of dying daily to yourself and living for Christ. And last, provide. Provide an offering. This is the week of prayer for international missions, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And you might say, who is Lottie Moon and what is this all about? This morning I want to show you a video explaining what Lottie Moon is, what we're doing with the missions offering. So hopefully it works this service. Here we go. My wife, Bobby, and I are traveling here in West Africa as a part of the International Mission Board's 2006 Missions Emphasis. We're here to catch a glimpse of what God is doing to reach the lost across this vast and ethnically diverse region. Admittedly, this is not an easy journey. The climate, especially here in the country like Niger, is brutal. Poverty is everywhere you look, and the work has been impeded by war, disease, and famine. We must realize as God's people that we're not called to a life of luxury and comfort. Christ said that if we desire to truly follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. What does that mean to you? 
What if we as Southern Baptists decided that denying ourselves meant leaving behind our expensive cars and air-conditioned churches to endure the heat in the regions like West Africa in order to be obedient to God's call? One of the pivotal people groups of reaching the peoples of West Africa are the Tuareg, spread across many countries in this region. Warren and Sharon Heslin are here working among the Tuareg in the country of Niger. Hearing this Tuareg compound, they are able to share the love of Christ because of your gifts to the cooperative program and the Light of Moon Christmas offering. As you give of your offerings, you allow the Heslins to be obedient to God's call and to share the gospel with people like the Tuareg and people groups all over the world. On our journey, Bobby has had the joy of visiting the work of Susan Roach among the Bambara people here in Mali. Susan has been training women with the evangelistic tool of chronological Bible story. Understanding this method is going to be crucial in reaching the lost, not only here among the Bambara, but across the mission frontiers around the world. A majority of the unreached in our world are oral learners, meaning they won't be reached by the gospel in written form. These largely non-literate people groups require an oral gospel presentation. As Southern Baptists, we're going to have to rethink our strategies. We must reshape our method of evangelism to accommodate this oral method of learning. I'm back here at my home church, Grove Avenue Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, and West Africa is thousands of miles away, but the burden of the region stays with me. West Africa is only an extreme example of lostness found in many regions of our world. The living conditions are harsh, the task is overwhelming, and in many areas the people groups are hostile to the gospel. But does that release us from the Great Commission? Absolutely not. We don't undertake this challenge because it is easy. We do it because Christ told us to, and because of the lostness of those who do not know him. In 2005, Southern Baptists gave an incredible amount of money to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, almost $138 million. But if we are serious about getting the gospel to all people, it is not enough. Fulfilling the Great Commission is going to require all of us to make a major sacrifice. Many are answering the call to go, but they cannot be obedient to God's call unless we provide the support that is needed. Hundreds of tribes and people groups in West Africa and throughout the world will never hear the gospel unless we give. Let me urge you to deny yourself and give sacrificially in order to fulfill our mission task and people like the Tuareg and Bambara can be reached. Thank you and your church for joining us in a cooperative effort to reach a lost world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me just explain quickly how we as Southern Baptists do missions, because I know there's many people that come here that haven't grown up Southern Baptists and aren't real familiar with the different names we have for offerings. Um, we voluntarily contribute to what's called the cooperative program. The cooperative program is the Southern Baptist way where thousands of Southern Baptist churches across the country pool our resources together into one fund called the cooperative program. This fund goes to 
support over 5,000 missionaries across the globe. The unique thing about the cooperative program is that missionaries do not have to go to church to church to church to get support. Every missionary that we commission and send off on the field is fully funded, salary, they have health insurance, life insurance, and retirement. So the missionary can go on the field knowing for sure they can spend 100% of their time doing the mission work and not have to worry about raising funds. That's why Southern Baptists are a little unique than other type of mission organizations. We pool our funds through the cooperative program. That's the cooperative program. Once a year, we give what's called the Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was a missionary to China in the 1800s. It's named after her. 100% of the funds given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering go directly to the mission field to support mission personnel. This past year, as he said, the Southern Baptist Convention, all of our churches combined raised $138 million. The goal this year is $150 million. Our small little piece of the pie here at Emmanuel is $2,006 is what our goal is to give to international missions. We can give this, we can, you can give that today or give it through all throughout the month of December as we send these funds off to support missions. This year, the focus is on West Africa. Each year, there's a different focus. West Africa is the focus this year. Let me give you a few statistics about West Africa. The area that we're focusing on this year has 287 million people in 22 countries. Out of that, over 150 million of them are lost people. 1,600 people groups, 1,100 different languages. 50% are Muslim in a lot of countries that are under persecution. Southern Baptist missionaries in West Africa, 242. Here's the startling statistic. One evangelical missionary per 600,000 people. There's no way one missionary is going to be able to reach that many lost people. And it's not just because we send money that that's going to reach people. What reaches people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But our money and our prayer and our support help the gospel to get out in more effective ways. So I strongly urge you to pray about giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering this year and thinking about giving over this month to that. And so here's my, here's my closing of the sermon this morning. We're going to take our offering here in just a moment. I'm going to pray for the offering. That's how we're going to kind of close the service. Does your heart break for the persecuted church? I challenge you to go to www.persecution.com this week and just read some of the stories. Get on their email list. It'll change your perspective on what's going on around the world. Are you heartbroken for the nations that don't know Christ? Nations around the world living in darkness because the gospel has not penetrated to lost souls. And yet we sometimes sit in our cushiony, air-conditioned, heated worship centers and we don't think about or pray about our brothers and sisters around the world. So I challenge us this morning to be a church that prays, that gives, that pleads for lost people to be saved. Not because we have deserved it. Not because we're any better, but because we've been richly blessed. Think about it, folks. We've been richly blessed by the Lord living in America, living in Sterling, Colorado, being involved in this church and in your families. We need to pray and give. So as our men come forward to take the offering this morning, I want to pray for that. This is our regular offering time too. Give as the Lord leads you this morning. And then um, as we're taking the offering, we'll watch another video. Get that one ready too. Let's pray.